Hey there, welcome to Dirt Rich, seasonal conversations on food and farming. I'm Katie Federal, the Communications Director for the Sustainable Farming Association. And today we're very lucky to have one of our Midwest Soil Health Summit presenters join us just a bit early. Sarah Keogh is an integrative eco-nutritionist practicing in Maryland. She specializes in clinical nutrition and regenerative agriculture to restore both human and ecological health. She's also a technical advisor with Understanding Ag. Sarah will be speaking on nutrient-dense foods and human and soil health connections on March 10th at the summit. And today she's indulging me in a bit of an intro to her field of work in nutrition and regenerative agriculture that was entirely new to me, and maybe for some of you as well. Hey Sarah, how's it going? Thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, great. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And so the first burning question, I think, is what exactly is an integrative eco-nutritionist? <laughs> well, this is kind of a little um, term I, I coined for myself, I guess, with the inspiration of um, Mr. Fred Provenza. We know a lot of people are um, hopefully familiar with in this community for Gen Ag, but um, well, I'm, I'm actually, I'm an integrative nutritionist, clinical nutritionist, so I have a private practice here in Maryland. Uh, where I work with, you know, patients with a wide variety of, of health issues. And, uh, but my journey actually began in my home state of Colorado. And I was working on a um, degree in biology. And at that time, I was actually on a, a career path into conservation work. So I wanted to be a conservation biologist. And of course, a big focus in that work is ecological um, studies. So ecological work and environmental studies. And um, as you know, chatted about before, geographical information systems is all important part of my, my coursework. And I worked in the, uh, the Rocky Mountains as part of some of my internships during my, my undergrad um, program. And it was just beautiful. It was amazing being outside all the time and and with nature and just really kind of just tracking um, different species of birds and other wildlife. And, and um, that was, that was all part of that sort of past life. I feel like it was so long ago, but I, you know, I always loved uh, nutrition and health and that was always a passion of mine. And I kind of just felt like, you know, towards the Last year of my biology program, actually, I had this, uh, you know, just a change of heart. I felt I had a different calling and I, I decided I wanted to pursue um, a graduate degree in nutrition. So uh, it, was, <laughs> it was hard to break away from, you know, that, that, old, um, that old path of going into conservation work because I loved it so much. But um, I looked at schools all over the country and I found this incredible graduate school in Maryland that just kind of met all my criteria of what I wanted um, to learn as part of a as part of an integrative uh, nutrition degree and just to kind of give your audience an understanding of, of what it of integrative health because that's maybe a term they've heard of before mm-hmm. or maybe not but integrative health is where really that's this community of integrative medicine I would say is we're trying to integrate in many different modalities to help people heal so it's not just about conventional medicine and medications um, some of those things have their place in healing and health, but obviously we're trying to get to the root cause of health conditions and, you know, help people restore their health um, from the ground level up, you know, and work on a solid foundation. So we integrate in maybe herbal remedies and um, natural supplements. Obviously food is incredibly integral to that whole healing process. So that's, that's in a nutshell what, what that means. And Fred became an inspiration when I heard him one day um, you know, years ago. And I think it was a conference, uh, the Grassroot Exchange. He gave a talk on, um, you know, nutritional wisdom of animals. And he was talking about how um, the doctors of the future will be ecological doctors. And that really resonated with me. And I think at that, that time he was talking about, you know, uh, really farmers and ranchers, and, you know, being ecological doctors and healing the land with what they're doing with their work. Um, but for me, it was kind of like, oh, well, I'm, I think I'm an eco-nutritionist given my background and what I'm doing now. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That just, that reminded me of the Wendell Berry quote that you used in like a recent um, article for Understanding Ag, where uh, yeah. people are fed by the food industry, which pays no attention to health. 
and are treated by the health industry, which pays no attention to food. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I heard that quote years ago too. And that one always stuck with me. And that's when I really started, um, you know, looking into, you know, the farming communities and, and learning sort of the plight of farmers, you know, what they've been dealing with for so many decades in this country, but also our food system and why it was so broken. And Wendell Berry was very influential in my career as well. And I, you know, he's, he's an activist, you know, he's not just a farmer, he's an activist and an incredibly beautiful poet and um, so many quotes from him. There's another one I use in my talks all the time that eating is an agricultural act. And that's so important to my work when I'm trying to, you know, teach patients, clients, you know, what, what the importance is of their food choices. It's not just about their health. It's about how their food choices impact our environment, our ecological systems too, and our agricultural systems, of course. So at a few different places, I've seen you refer to farmers as healers. Can you mm-hmm. explain a bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, again, that's kind of some of the, the, um, thoughts that Fred inspired when he spoke of, you know, ecological doctors and, and, you know, it's just, and, and Wendell's work and many other farmers and, and folks that inspired me in this, this community of regenerative agriculture, it's farmers and ranchers, you know, it's their obligation to be good stewards of the land and to take care of their ecosystems and to learn how to farm with nature. And so I truly believe that you know, farmers, ranchers are going to to help, you know, heal this planet in so many ways. And it, I think it's always kind of um, funny when, you know, patients will come to me and say, thank you so much, you know, you helped me heal or, you know, you, you're a healer, you know, and I say, well, no, no, I'm really not a healer. I just help maybe facilitate your healing process. And I was here to guide you. And, and um, you know, I, I think it's really the farmers that, they provide the nourishment, right? They, they're healing the land. And now we know that they can play a really significant role in, in climate change. We can change our agricultural practices and restore a lot of our ecosystems and sequester carbon, right? And soil. So it's, they're just, I have so much respect for farmers and admiration and hope to farm someday myself. But <laughs> oh, wow. um, yeah, yeah, they're, they're really our healers. Yeah, and your comment about, you know, people calling you a healer and saying, no, you're just facilitating, uh, that brought to mind a few memories of conversations I've had with growers, too. And I think they might actually say the same thing in some cases of like, I'm just facilitating, you know, my stewardship (laughs) is facilitating the healing of the land, but like nature is, as long as I'm managing it properly, nature is doing the work for me kind of thing. Yeah, Um, yeah, I think it's good to have that humility, right? You know, I think we all kind (laughs) of... And we, I guess none of us humans really want to take credit for it. At the end of the day, it's, it's mother nature. That's healing. Yeah. That's right. So, <laughs> wow. So in the, in your practice there, I imagine that like you kind you may run into um, healthy food access as a barrier for some people in the work that you do. Um, yeah. And I'm yeah, curious since that's such a big issue, you know, in all parts of the country, if food access is difficult uh, for financial reasons or for geographical reasons. So I'm wondering, like, what tools or systems have you found to maybe help bridge that gap? Yeah, that's such a good question. It's a huge problem, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, where I live, I mean, just to kind of talk locally for a minute and then to kind of expand that to what I see is, can be a model for, for other systems throughout the country and the world. Um, locally here, you know, I will say it's, you know, it's a different type of demographic here in Maryland. Uh, cost of living is very high. But then you have, you know, some inner city areas like in Baltimore. And so it's quite, you know, a contrast. And there's a lot of places like that, I think, throughout the country. You have the cities and then you have um, inner city areas and suburbs and rural communities. So, um, you know, how do you get good quality food um, to all these different regions? And, you know, and and how do we make it affordable, right? And Mm -hmm. One thing I will say, I always like to give a big shout out to my friend, um, Liz Reitzig. She has a uh, buying club, this little local uh, kind of small regional buying club called Grasped on the Hill. And um, you can find her club through 1000ecofarms.com. Excellent resource to look at, look for these buying clubs all over the country. And, and what it is, um, is a, an online kind of buying club where you can, there's no fee to sign up. Um, you just go in and 
pick out foods from all sorts of different farmers that she's kind of vetted, you know, to be of good quality and people are taking good care of the land and whatnot. And you can buy all sorts of things, meats and eggs and dairy. And she does all the work, you know, all the legwork. She goes around to Pennsylvania and Maryland and Virginia and all these farms once a week, every week picks up all everything for your order and then drops it off at a local drop point nearby. Or you maybe have to drive like, you know, 20 minutes or so to, to get your order. Um, it's and then you pay like a small delivery you know, fee as part of your order. And that's, that's it's just a wonderful, amazing service. I've referred so many of my patients to her um, when they're struggling with sourcing. And I'm seeing a lot of other creative things, too. You know, like there's these kind of farm to food truck operations, you know, where they're getting into the, the cities and getting people fresh local food from the farms. Um, just tons of farmers markets, too, you know, I think are really important mm -hmm. um, to have. And, you know, here in Baltimore, there's a huge farmers market. So huge, huge, where a lot of people can go. And then you know, we're talking about, you know, issues with like so socioeconomic um, factors and people that do have financial constraints. That's a big problem, too. And I try to teach people how to incorporate, you know, the most nutrient dense foods into their diet. Uh, for the least, you know, costs and, you know, the least expensive way. And that's, that's, you know, when you get a little creative and open your mind to introducing new things to your palate, um, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's, it, there's a way to eat nutrient dense food in a way that's affordable. An example of that would be, you know, organ meats and bones for making bone broth, you know, mm -hmm. um, that, that you can easily turn some of these foods that used to be like the throwaway parts, you know, the butcher would just throw out the, throw out the livers, right. Or give the liver to the, the dogs to eat. And now people, you know, pay for the livers because it's their nutrient dense foods or even like programs that I've seen are um, like imperfect produce, you know, or ugly produce, right. The, the yeah. produce that might have blemishes on it or um, have odd shapes or whatever that people just don't want to want to buy. And they get kind of left behind while people still perfectly good food. And, you know, there's programs for that too. And you, so you can get some organic produce um, and much lower cost through some of those type of programs. So, you know, it's definitely not an area that I, that I work in, but it's something I, I'm always trying to learn more about because I have to be able to help people um, get access to those type of foods for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It sounds like as with most, um, I guess, ecological issues, we're finding that a diversity of options really helps. Mm -hmm. Um, you listed a lot of a great variety of, of ways to get healthy food into people's hands. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good analogy there. Diversity everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <a> good thing. <laughs> and I know you're going to dive into nutrient dense foods more at the soil health summit. Um, but since you mentioned, would you mind giving us a, a brief background for folks who haven't heard of nutrient dense foods before? Yeah, yeah, it's, that's a good topic. It's one of my favorite topics because one <laughs> of the questions I always get is, what is nutrient density? What does that even really mean? Um, and uh, I'll definitely, of course, go into that in my talks and presentations. I like to explain to people that nutrient density, you know, is classically defined as the, you know, number of nutrients per like calorie food. So, one example I like to, to give people sometimes if, if I have, um, you know, a couple blueberries in one hand and I'm holding a couple slices of bread in the other hand, if you think about the number of calories in each food, and then if you think about the, the number of nutrients in each food, you know, which one do you think has more nutrient density, which has more nutrients per calorie? And it's pretty easy, right? Most people are going to say, well, the blueberries, right? They're going to have lots of antioxidants and fiber and um, all these wonderful polyphenols and plant compounds and the bread, the, the you know, couple of slices of white bread is going to be very processed and, you know, not as nutrient dense. Uh, the conversation always gets a little more interesting if you switch that up and say, okay, let's say I have, you know, the cup of blueberries again, and uh, I have maybe a small paste, uh, small serving of nutrient dense steak, you know, some grass fed beef. Um, for gay Brown's farm or whatever, you know, and <laughs> what if you compare them, uh, let's just say they're, they're actually calorically equal, you know, let's say you have enough blueberries to equal the amount of calories in this tiny piece of steak or whatever, which one has more nutrients, which one's more nutrient dense, you know, mm -hmm. and that's, that's where the conversation gets really interesting because people aren't sure unless they, you know, unless we're 
listening to certain narratives that keep promoting me as, as uh, you know, not good for health and not nutrient dense, which we could talk about, but, you know, it turns out the pasture raised meat, especially from an operation that's, uh, you know, regenerative operation has lots of nutrients, um, probably a lot more than the blueberries. <laughs> so, mm. um, so nutrient density is also really, at least the research around nutrient density is quite, um, I want to say reductionistic, you know, there's this, this term of um, nutritional reductionism, meaning we're just looking at, you know, most science, most nutritional science is really flawed when it comes to looking at nutrients, because they're only looking at a small subset of nutrients, maybe 10, 15, 20 nutrients. There's one particular study I bring up a lot in, in my um, talks. And that's, you know, it's called the Milo study it was a French study. And, it, you know, they were looking at a huge variety of different foods and assessed their nutrient density, but they really only looked at maybe, you know, 15, 20 different nutrients. You know, there's, there's thousands of different phytochemicals, plant compounds, probably some we haven't even discovered yet, at least, you know, as far as their health benefits go and, and what they can do in the human body. So, you know, that type of research is interesting, but it's still quite limited because there's, there's so many other nutrients that we're not looking at. And I think, you know, Dr. Fred Provenza's work, and if anyone's read his book, Nourishment, it's just, you know, it, it really is a masterpiece. It's an amazing book. And um, he talks a lot about this, this concept of nutrient density and all the different nutrients in, in a variety of foods. He is doing some work with um, Dr. Stefan Van Vliet down at Duke University, and they're, they're conducting some research to really assess um, the, the different phytochemicals um, in different foods, particularly meat. So um, that's through the different type of research called metabolomics. And so it dives much deeper into nutrient profiles in food. So it's kind of like, you know, in a nutshell, the nutrient density piece, but there's, there's so much more we need to understand. And there's, there's a lot lacking in current research. Yeah, it kind of, that's kind of what has, at least for me, made it so complex to even approach topics of nutrition, because there's, <laughs> there's just so much to it. And <laughs> Every time yes. you like try to grasp at one thing, you pull out another. And yeah. So I want to step back to, you know, your example between the blueberries and the bread and then how things get, you know, a little more complicated when we start to talk about like the blueberries and the steak. Um, so at SFA, we talk a lot about, you know, the five principles of soil health. You know, we got keeping the soil covered, minimizing soil disturbance, increasing crop diversity, keeping a living root in the soil. And then the fifth one is kind of a sticking point for some people about integrating livestock. And so through the lens of like nutrition and health, um, how would you talk about how like animals fit into the picture and hopefully speaking to, you know, those who include both meat and animal products in your diet and those who don't. Yeah. Meat is kind of a, a can of worms for some people. So I'm curious about it that. It sure is. Yeah. <laughs> it sure is. And it's a topic I've become um, so passionate about and I didn't, realized I, I would because, you know, I've dabbled personally in so many different diets of, you know, vegetarianism and veganism and then mm -hmm. paleo and, you know, carnivore diets kind of all over the map dabbling in different things. But, you know, kind of going back to your example or rather the example I brought up with the blueberries, right? And the, and the steak, you know, I, the way I try to encourage people to look at those is not that they're maybe competing with one another, that maybe they're both really nutrient dense, but in incredibly different ways. So, you know, there's some foods that are obvious that are going to be very, um, obviously going to be very poor, you know, in nutrient density, right? Like, like the white bread example. Mm -hmm. um, but other foods, it's, it, I think, you know, there's this tendency for, for some groups of people or, you know, some, some humans that want to have this either or mentality, you know, it's, it can't, we can't have the fruits and vegetables with the meat, you know, the meat has to be out of the diet. And, um, you know, there's just this really you know, I would say powerful narrative right now. Uh, a lot of organizations around the world that are really encouraging people to adopt a plant-based diet, right? Plant-based, that term has become all the rage, you know, first it was kind of like mm -hmm. vegetarianism and veganism, but now it's like plant-based is, is the new catchphrase. And, um, I, you know, I would hear this sometimes and I, I didn't really get too concerned about it. And then the plant-based meats became a really, um, really popular, right? And I've written some articles about this for Understanding Ag, and we did a whole webinar on it, a lot of the health concerns that I have uh, with the plant-based meats, and they're just, they're super incredibly processed. 
um, some with highly questionable ingredients. And, you know, of course, that's, that's a whole other can of worms in and of itself. But as far as incorporating meat into the diet and, and the critical importance of that, just from a health standpoint, when I learned about how nutrient dense, you know, organ meats were, and even just the nutrient density of, you know, just a steak, right. And particularly a regenerative steak, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's just amazing how healing it is for people. And I first started learning about the carnivore diet a few years ago and how extreme that is. Me and I were just chatting about that before, you know, like it's, it's basically a diet where you're just eating, um, all animal sourced foods. So I, you know, if you tolerate dairy, that can include cheeses and milk, but, you know, obviously red meats and, and even fish. Um, but it's the complete elimination of all plant foods from the diet. And I thought, well, that's pretty extreme. You know, I thought veganism was extreme, but wow, that's, <laughs> that's the opposite um, end of these, the spectrum, right. As far as extremes go. And, I, I, you know, I always maintain an open mind and just, I want to learn how this is helping people, you know, just like I wanted to learn how veganism is helping people. And it was very impressive. You know, some of the results people would get and the stories I would hear about people healing their autoimmune conditions and their gut issues, their chronic lifelong digestive issues and the energy they felt when they started incorporating animal proteins into their diet. And, And it was just fascinating to me. And again, I was very skeptical because when it comes to extreme diets, I don't like the idea of, I don't like the idea of elimination of too many foods. I, I want to be as mm-hmm. inclusive of pos- as possible of so many foods. What did we talk about earlier? Like diversity, <laughs> diversity in your diet yeah. is just so important too. Um, but, you know, sometimes um, I think diets that might be extreme, if, if they're used maybe temporarily in a very therapeutic way, that can be a way to transition into incorporating other foods into your diet. And that's what I try to do with other, with most of my patients really um, throughout their healing journey. But um, I will say that I think there's something really important that we should all think about. And it's, it's something called bio-individuality. And what that essentially means is that we're all individuals, right? We're all extremely different individuals with very different physiology and genetics and biochemistry. And we all respond um, to to different foods differently. So I, it's, I've come to the sort of conclusion at this point, And, you know, again, my, my mind's always open. I'm always learning, but I've come to just sort of understand that everybody is different and does, does, uh, you know, performs differently in different diets, right? Some people do better with a more plant-based diet. Um, some people do, you know, much better with more meat heavy diet. Um, but by and large, I think adding animal proteins, to people's diets as I, that's where I've seen some of the most amazing health outcomes. And again, that's what I'll be talking about in more detail in our upcoming talk, um, my upcoming presentation rather about the, the case studies, you know, presenting actual, you know, evidence, like here's the improvements I've seen in cholesterol by incorporating more meat into the diet, you know, which mm-hmm. goes very, you know, goes very much against that, that, um, like I said, that very, um, pervasive narrative that we keep hearing about how bad meat is for our heart health and our cholesterol mm. and, you know, inflammation. I see inflammation markers go down. I see cholesterol improve when people add in um, animal uh, proteins to their diet. It's, it's amazing. Gosh. Oh, I have so many questions now. But <laughs> I'll try to direct them away from, you know, what you're going to present on next week, but um that you know brings up kind of my like big question I guess I've been grappling with there's so many mixed messages about nutrition and health you know when you were just talking about plant-based um you know plant-based now seems like a code word for healthy um there's just like an assumption behind that without many questions um when you were talking about uh how you know cholesterol and meat have been kind of demonized I remember you know a family member years ago doing like the Atkins diet which was lots of meat lots of cholesterol. (laughs) Um, And so like these are perceptions or understandings of health and nutrition totally change over time um, with regards to like specific types of food or nutrients or ingredients. Um, Mm -hmm. And then not to mention just like different diets that pass through and whether those are healthy for us like emotionally, psychologically or physically is kind of up for debate in some cases, I think. 
So as eaters, you know, how, what advice do you have for people who need to like navigate all these messages and sometimes like directly conflicting information? Again, such an, such a good question. And I, I get these questions directly from patients all the time. It's, it's probably one of the first questions I get with an initial session with the patient. How do I navigate this very, very confusing food system? And how, you know, uh, how do I know who to believe? You know, I have a doctor over here who's telling me plant-based is, is ideal. And I have another doctor over here uh, that's been on a carnivore diet and they're telling me this is the way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, again, it can just goes back to that bio-individuality thing. I think we all need to just find what really works for our bodies and be willing to experiment. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it really does require an open mind too, and, and being willing to try new foods. But I feel like by and large, the patients that seem to have the most optimal health are those that do eat very seasonally and eat a, a huge variety of foods. And I personally found that's what works for me. So just mm-hmm. to give you an example, like maybe in the winter time, um, you know, it's time of year, especially where I'm at here in Maryland, so there's not anything growing fresh and local. <laughs> so I'm, I eat a lot more meats and I feel great with it. You know, I eat more meat and um, try to eat more fish and, you know, try to try to source as local as I can. I'm not hundred percent local, of course, but I try to get everything um, local and fresh because I want also nutrient density um, is dependent on the freshness of the food, right? And how we, how we process it and store it. So I want food that's as local as possible for that, that aspect too, the, the nutrient density aspect. But then, you know, as we kind of fade into spring, you know, transition in spring and winter, or I mean, summer, right? We're going to have more um, fresh food available. And so that's when I start adding in a lot more plant foods and especially in a seasonal way, you know, some of the first foods that come up in the spring might be like asparagus and I'm a wild mushroom forager. So I love um, eating wild mushrooms that come up as morels will be here in hopefully a month or two. And <laughs> so I just, I really love that idea of seasonality. And then maybe, you know, in the summertime, maybe I might cut back a little more on the meats and have a more, um, you know, maybe plant-based kind of approach to my diet. I, I do eat animal proteins all year round though. And my diet is never really devoid of that. I maybe just eat a little bit less at certain times of the year. So then the cycle might repeat itself. And and once you go into the fall, start adding more squash and kind of carbohydrate rich foods. And then again, winter kind of go into more of a carnivore thing. And that's, that's something I've been playing around with more recently. And I think that works really well. And I've, one of my mentors in um, my graduate school program in in my nutrition program uh, said that, and it always really stuck with me. And he didn't really, as far as I know, he, he never talked about, you know, agriculture, certainly not redundant agriculture and nutrient density, but he, he did say that he saw that patients that had that flexibility and open-mindedness and always willing to try new things and eating with the seasons just had the best health outcomes. And, um, you know, you're also maximizing the variety of nutrients you're getting, you're making your microbiome really happy with all these different foods and so, yeah, I think it's just trying different things is, is the best advice I can give people is just try different things and be willing to, to open your mind and, and read the research, you know, and, and hopefully like, you know, with, with me presenting case studies and, and it's not just the results I'm getting with patients, other practitioners are also getting these results that when we add back in animal foods, to the diet, we just see such a, an improvement in health. And, you know, I always just like to point out one really obvious fact that many people don't know, or they maybe forget humans have been eating animal meats for millions of years, <laughs> you know, millions of years. And I don't know how we would have survived as a species, you know, if it was something that was so damaging to our health. So gosh, I've never heard like the seasonal eating has always been under the context of like reducing your carbon footprint, supporting local farmers, like all great things. Um, but that's new to me to hear it in the context of like, oh, this could actually be, you know, beneficial for your health and body. Um, yeah, that's yeah. fascinating. And it it was bringing to mind um, regenerative practices, you know, stemming from indigenous practices, native practices. Yeah. And in theory, <laughs> they yeah. ate, you know, seasonally, of course, that was what was available. So yeah, yeah, it's I don't know if you have any comments to make about that or knowledge. This this is musings and me making connections now, but. 
Yeah, no, and I think that's, that's, yeah, if we, that's actually, I'm really glad you brought that up as a matter of fact, because I think that's the other component of this all. If we try to think back to our own ancestry and, you know, how did our, how did your ancestors eat? You know, where did you come from? You know, and I'm, I have a lot of Eastern European, um, particularly Hungarian in my background. Um, so obviously they quite different from some of my other ancestors, which are from Ireland, <laughs> you know, some mm-hmm. similarities, but still very different. And then I, you know, my great grandfather was Native American. So then there's a different, <laughs> different patterns of eating, you know, so it just, you know, it depends on, you know, your, I think your ancestry too, you know, really look into your ha- ancestry. And that's something I've, I've tried to do more so for myself recently too, is understand my, my genetics and, my ancestry, because I think there's a lot to be said about trying to eat the way your ancestors ate, not just the the one size fits all kind of paleo diet, right? Which I think the paleo diet's really been helpful for a lot of people. But I think to dive even deeper in that, take that to the next level, you know, exploring what your ancestors really ate um, is so important. You know, my my partner, he's um, Indian of Indian descent, so he's Indo-Asian, and we're kind of you know, discovering that, you know what, I think you just need more rice in your diet. Because <laughs> when we first met, oh. he kind of cut a lot of grains out of his diet, and he felt really great and improved his joint pain. And, um, you know, he lost a little weight, he was never really overweight to begin with. But he's that he's one of those people that can eat just so much food and never gain weight, right? Oh, one of those dream. that most, oh yeah, the, exactly. <laughs> that most everyone's jealous of. Yeah. And <laughs> so perfect metabolism. But you know, he's like, you know, trying to put some muscle mass on and, um, you know, just very lean body composition. But I say, you know what, I think you just need a little more rice. Think about your ancestry. And he, we actually just had a meal the other night um, with the wonderful Ray Archuleta when we, we were on his farm. And, uh, you know, we, we, he, we added a lot more rice back in his diet. And he was like, I felt good. I felt good with that meal, like having more rice. Mm-hmm. It felt more satiating rather than just eating meat or, you know, meat and vegetables type of thing. So, you know, so that's just, again, think, think back to your ancestry and embrace that more and incorporate that into your diet. And, you know, in indigenous cultures, I think it's just so wonderful to learn from them and their traditional ways of eating and even preparing food, you know, to maximize nutrient density in food is, is interesting to learn about. Oh gosh. Yeah. Could you say a little bit more on that? Yeah, well, I mean, for example, I've learned that, well, over the years, I've learned that the preparation of grains, for example, and and beans and legumes, there's ways to um, soak them and ferment them, you know, fermenting vegetables, of course, one of my favorite ferments is kimchi, you know, that's Mm. a very traditional um, fermented uh, Korean dish, and it's just a fermented um, cabbage and and you can put a variety of different vegetables in it, but typically it's cabbage and maybe some, some carrots and things like that. And very spicy, you know, they use a lot of peppers in there. And um, I love kimchi and fermented sauerkraut would be something maybe more from my ancestry. Um, so, you know, I think learning how to prepare foods to maximize the digestibility of it and the nutrient density. And, you know, there's even like um, fermented meats, which I don't, know a lot about, but I'm kind of learning more about this. You know, if you think about the, the beef sticks, a lot of farmers use there's, um, and maybe you might know more about this. <laughs> I oh. this is where I need to pick a farmer's brain, but they, there's a, a species of bacteria that they'll use to kind of preserve, you know, these meat sticks that you see. Oh. And that's actually a source of like a probiotic come to find out. So I just recently wow. learned that from another practitioner. I said, never really thought about that. Um, but yeah, you can even ferment different meats and to make them more, again, to make the, the nutrients and the food more bioavailable. Um, and that's actually something I, I didn't comment about previously when we were talking about um, the nutrient density of animal proteins. One really important consideration for, you know, for consumers is that the nutrients in animal proteins, um, animal fats, animal meats, and dairy is, tends to be a lot more bioavailable meaning our body can absorb and assimilate and utilize those nutrients much more easily um, than it can from plant foods. 
And that mm -hmm. is because some of the plant foods have, you know, phyt phytic acid, phytates, uh, lectins, these uh, plant compounds that kind of bind to minerals or, or impede the absorption of certain nutrients. So that's why I think some of these people do better to in carnivore diets, right? Because these nutrients are more bioavailable. They're, if you have impaired digestion, you're not struggling with breaking down all these um, fiber-rich foods, just even allow your body to access the nutrients. So, so it's all so fascinating, again, learning about all these different ways to prepare food um, before we even consume it so that we can allow for greater bioavailability in the nutrients. Man, I don't even know where to go from there. That's so. That's <laughs> I know. I was so like, I feel like I'm so on a tangent, but <laughs> no, it's oh my gosh, it's just making me realize, I guess, how much more there is to something that I already was overwhelmed by. <laughs> you yeah, know, nutrition just having so much to it. Um, yes, yes. Gosh, I guess I want to backtrack just slightly um, when you're talking about bio individuality how if you know seeing a nutritionist isn't accessible for some folks like how can we explore that individually you know you mentioned um we're talking about eating seasonally could be a way to you know see how you feel but do you have more specifics on our other ideas yeah i mean i would say you know obviously eating finding out what really grows local um for you and in you know when it comes into season is important but doing some investigative work into your ancestry, you know, maybe going, uh, running some genetic testing, um, you know, it's, it's relatively inexpensive and you can get your complete genomic profile essentially and plug that into different software programs and even learn about where you, you know, based on your genetics, where you might be more predisposed to, for example, insulin resistance or, you know, heart disease. Um, so insulin resistance, diabetes, a lot of these chronic conditions we hear a lot about. Um, some people are just more genetically predisposed to them. So that can guide you in some of your eating patterns if you know that information. Um, and, you know, there's also certain genes that even can control how well we metabolize and utilize certain nutrients. Um, so for example, I have like a genetic defect where I just, my body has a greater need for zinc. And there is micronutrient testing that I utilize in my practice. And I, I think that's a really um, critically important test to evaluate nutrient deficiencies, you know, with some common vitamins and minerals. And whenever I test on that, you know, when, for myself, anyways, whenever I, I test my own micronutri micronutrient test, I tend to be deficient in zinc. And I, I have felt so much better with zinc as far as, you know, um, mood and, um, you know, depression, anxiety, because zinc is incredibly important as in um, helping us make neurotransmitters, you know, like serotonin, dopamine, and, you know, zinc gets a lot of attention for being an important mineral for our immune system, but zinc mm -hmm. has over 300 different, um, is involved in over 300 different metabolic processes in the human body. So that's just one nutrient, right? So yeah. you can look at different genes for, you know, even vitamin D. So that can kind of give you a little guidance, you know, as far as kind of custom tailoring a diet to your specific biochemistry. And sometimes you just don't know until you actually try things, you know, and I would say give it at least, you know, a good month or two with changing your eating patterns. Don't, don't stick with it for, you know, a few days or a week before you kind of make up your mind if it's right for you. Cause sometimes it really takes time for your body to adjust to different things. Obviously people really unwell right off the bat. It's probably not going in a good direction, but mm -hmm. sometimes it takes a little time for your microbiome as well, especially the gut microbiome to get used to adding in new foods. So and particularly with different plant foods, right? Some people experience maybe bloating and gas when they add in some different foods that their microbiome is not used to, but that doesn't mean your microbiome uh, can't adjust to those different foods, especially when you're trying to incorporate in new foods. Generally, it's not a problem with, um, you know, animal-based foods though, unless it's like a dairy sensitivity or something like that, or some people are reactive to eggs. Uh, but most people tolerate most meats very well, whether it's beef or lamb or goat or, you know, uh, pork. I, and I love all those meats. I eat all of them, you know, in a variety of fish. So, so yeah, I think just tinkering around the different things uh, there's, you know, even for myself all the time, I'm always questioning, you know, what's, what's really ideal. And that's why I like the idea of eating very different throughout the year so that I'm just mm -hmm. getting a variety of foods.
And I love that that method, you know, uh, figuring out what's available locally at different times of year, you know, going to farmers markets can have that built in component then of like building connections with people who grow the food, um, yeah. connecting with farmers in your local food system. And that, I mean, I totally understand how like changing your health and nutrition can be life changing. And of course, mm -hmm. you know, adding people to your circle and forming these great relationships yeah. can be life changing as well. It's yeah, love that's, it. <laughs> I, I, no, I love. Actually, was gonna say I love that you brought that up because that's something I always try to emphasize um, to people as well. Whether whether mm. I'm you know speaking in at conferences or whether I'm talking one on one to a patient is to really cultivate that relationship with your your local farmers and develop that relationship and ask them what they're doing with their soil and you know um, you know maybe pick their brain about what they know about the nutrient density of some of their foods and that's where I hope to educate farmers because um, some of them don't know about how wonderfully nutrient dense the foods are they're they're growing and how they can speak to that you know when they're when they're talking to their you know consumers customers that are um, at the farmer's market and asking them questions about what they're growing you know so that's that's all part of the just that that beautiful um, circle you know connecting it all together of, of getting to know your farmer getting to know where your food comes from I love it when farmers are just you know welcoming and have people come to the farm you know maybe having a farm day a couple times a year we have people come out um, to the farm and see what you're doing or you know Gabe says you know and um, much like Joel Saladin my farm's open 365 days a year anytime you know you just come out <laughs> and farm and see what's going on um, but you know yeah having that connection between consumers and farmers is so important so yeah going to the market seeing what's seasonal and actually talking to your farmers and having conversations really important absolutely and I for those who you know are nervous maybe about asking questions like that you know in my experience and I'm sure yours too the farmers are so excited to talk yeah. about you know get into specifics and I know some people really pride themselves on you know growing food for their community and yeah it would be, they would love to have that conversation with you that's love true to know what you're cooking and yeah yeah I'd be curious to know like farmers if they feel like that's maybe lacking from that experience you know I'd be curious mm -hmm. to know from their from their perspective um but from the consumer perspective I feel like yeah some uh a lot of people maybe just go to the market and get what they need and maybe say you know hello and have their pleasantries with the farmer but are they really asking you know important questions about how they're growing their food or you know, how's this crop doing this year? What's going on with the soil? You know, how are your animals doing? And can mm -hmm. I come to the farm and, you know, have some more of those, those questions that, um, yeah, cultivate that relationship. But yeah, I think, I think that's, but the farmers that are, you know, that's been my experience, what, what you, you know, similar to what you just said, Katie, about farmers that are proud of their work, and they're excited to talk about it. They, they welcome those questions. Mm -hmm. And I've kind of had to, you know, gently um, <laughs> correct some patients because, <laughs> you know, on how they approach some farmers, right? Because you don't want to put farmers on the defense and come at right. them with questions like, are you using chemicals? And, you know, <laughs> are oh, you 100% yeah. organic? And, you know, we kind of have to be gentle with how we approach it with with different farmers because some are in a transition process and maybe some do use chemicals from time to time and maybe some don't use any chemicals but they're not organic certified you know because it's very mm -hmm. expensive for some farmers for some smaller operations so um i always try to remind people don't you know don't turn your nose up at people that you think aren't doing everything perfect to your standards you know learn about maybe what they're doing and and ask questions and engage them in conversation because I I, th I do think you're right. I think farmers want that relationship and they they enjoy that part of being at the market. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. That that has come up in conversations um, where it's mostly farmers too. Is how do we show the value of the work we're doing um, and 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 the behind the scenes work too of like this is the care that I take to make sure that this crop grows well without chemicals or I used a cover crop to you know kind of amplify this aspect and this is an interesting conversation for I think all parties involved right and you know that's where I think the movie like biggest little farm really has been so profound which I'm sure you've seen you know to kind of yeah. give people give just the average consumer insight into all the struggles that farmers really go through especially if you're trying to maintain an operation that's um, a regenerative one that's farming with nature 
mm. um, you know, all the different things they, all the, you know, um, predators that they had to deal with on their farm in that movie and um, all the obstacles, you know, that would pop up and they had to learn how to use nature to counteract those things. And those are just, you, you don't see that you know, here at the market, just buying your food and it may not even come up in conversation, but seeing that movie gives people, it's so powerful for giving people that perspective and then a new respect for farmers and what they, what they endure. Um, but yeah, I think that's where going to the farm is also really important. I love when farmers have it, you know, at least one day a year, if you can make time for like a farm day, um, mm -hmm. get your, get the customers to come out to the farm. People love that. And they love bringing their families and I think that's just always, those are always really cool events. Well, we've strayed like almost completely into like the eater or consumer um, side of things by this <laughs> point. Um, but I know that, I mean, we're going to have a lot of farmers at the session for the Midwest Soil Health Summit. Um, and it'll be, of course, you know, eaters of all kinds, anyone who's interested, this will be um, accessible and interesting to you as well. But would, uh, Sarah, would you like to give a little preview, I guess, of what your summit presentation will be? Yeah, so I'm definitely going to discuss more of like the concepts around nutrient density that we talked about today and uh, present some very cool studies on at least what we do know right now about uh, nutrient dense foods. And I really like to shine always, you know, really bright light on Fred Provenza. Um, and, you know, like I mentioned before, Dr. Stefan Van Vliet and the research they're doing, because I, I just truly think they're uh, like the heroes for the regenerative farmers right now with uh, the, the research that they're putting out there to back up um, that, that what farmers are doing with their soil and, um, you know, the holistic managed grazing of livestock, the, you know, the integration of livestock on the land and, and also how that plays a role in the, the ecological health. What the research is showing is that that is, in the end, all of that is producing nutrient-dense food and so I like to just kind of talk a little bit about that and how, how that's all connected to our health in so many ways from our microbiome health um, and, you know, obviously giving us the nutrients that our body needs for a really well-functioning immune system. Of course, over the past year, a big concern for a lot of people is keeping their immune systems really strong and really healthy, you know, with everything that's going on with the virus. So we, that's at the end of the day, you just want to, no matter how you decide to manage your health with pharmaceuticals or not at the end of the day, you still have to eat well and, you know, do all those other lifestyle things of sleep and exercise and drinking plenty of water to maintain a good foundation for your health. Um, but I think to dig into that deeper and just kind of take it to the next level, learning how nutrient dense food is actually impacting your immune system is critically important. So that's just something I talk about all the time with my patients. So I'll be discussing that and presenting some, some really neat case studies. I just um, started doing that with this, um, you know, most, a most recent presentation I gave, so I'm going to add in a lot more, hopefully for this one and talk about, you know, real life examples of people that switch their, their diet to that of one that um, is better food quality. You know, it's, very difficult to be totally regenerative, right? But at least if you're sourcing some regenerative meats and trying to source some some local produce from healthy soils from a farmer you trust, um, that's that's a huge step in the right direction. And I see just awesome changes. But just that alone, even before we even get through the whole process of, um, you know, all the other stuff I do within functional integrative medicine, such as testing for food sensitivities and, you know, looking at your hormonal balancing or actually doing a soul test to look at what's happening with the microbiome before I even have to like dig into any of those um, kind of what we call functional medicine uh, tests and, and, and all those things in that toolbox. I see great changes with just changing the diet and improving food quality and incorporating in more animal proteins. Um, so that's kind of the the case studies I'll be presenting and even before and after results, like here was this person's cholesterol before and here's what it looks like now and how, you know, wonderfully improved it is after adding more animal proteins and saturated fat and all these things we keep hearing are bad for us and causing inflammation um, in our body. Well, that's, it's not true. I see inflammation markers go down and cholesterol improve and all that, like I mentioned. So it's just awesome to, I think, see real, real life examples of that. So I'll present some of those case studies and, and any other interesting things I'm always discovering, I'll probably throw in the presentation at the last minute. Cause I'm just, there's, I'm always between these two worlds of, 
um, you know, again, integrative medicine and <laughs> regenerative agriculture. And it's hard keeping up with these two fields. There's like my brain wants to explode every day because it's just so it's so much that it's like, oh, man, I can't keep up with it. But I, I do my best <laughs> to stay on top of all the latest <laughs> research in each of those areas. And um, so I'm in these two different worlds all the time, which is which is fun because I never get bored. But it's a oh, lot gosh. to take in. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for your work, because this is either topic is, you know, a series of topics within itself. And yeah, yeah I can imagine that keeping on top of both of them <laughs> for all the latest things <laughs> is just nuts. Oh yeah. Gosh. Yeah. It's crazy. Even with just the world and the microbiome research alone, there's just so many crazy amount of studies coming out <laughs> every day. <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, I'm just, I need the I need the cliff notes version of all this <laughs> stay on top of it, but it's fun. Like I said, I never get bored, but I'm always trying to trying to stay balanced between both worlds and just connect it all together. Cause at the end of the day, my big mission is to just unite um, the consumers, the agricultural communities and our healthcare practitioners. And that's a whole other topic I'm sure for another podcast, another day, but you know, getting our healthcare practitioners on board with understanding all of this is essential. Yeah, I definitely can't do it alone. <laughs> I need help from all my peers and colleagues to really educate um, you know, consumers and their patients about all this as well. So, gosh, yeah, it is also interconnected here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we're really looking forward to having you. And for our listeners, that's going to be on March 10th. The summit runs March 9th through 11th. You can register for the whole thing. Um, we'll put a link in the show notes to do that. Um, and then you can catch more of. Uh, what Sarah's got to share with us because yeah as she just said it's a whole lot and it's all really important so cool yeah thank you so much Sarah this is a lot of fun thank you Katie I really appreciate being here and I hope to see all of you um, next week Dirt Rich is produced by the Sustainable Farming Association we believe that agriculture done well heals for more resources or to tap into the farmer to farmer network visit us at sfa-mn.org Thank you.